I want to say hello. Welcome to, uh, to number our days. It really is hard to say. I really, it is. Uh, this is our 26th lesson. And here's what I would say about this lesson. This lesson today is probably the one that I would say most people have been wanting us to teach on since we started. And we're not done after this, just so you know. You're not like, okay, good, I'm out. We, we've heard this topic now. I think it's fair to say there probably isn't, I'll at least say every two weeks, that somebody doesn't ask me about the rapture. And so now we can talk about it today. And, you know, I, I, was, uh, I was actually at the upper room. Uh, we were getting ready to go into a meeting and a guy shouted out. He goes, hey, tell me your view, pre, mid, or post. I'm like, yes. No. Anyway, I, I, I'm saying that because we've been, we've been excited about this lesson today for a long time. Uh, really, though, I want to point out something. Uh, we're on our 26th lesson, and now we're talking about this. I think if it was up to anybody, they want to make this the number one message. This is a part of it. It's not the main thing. And if your theology is based on the rapture as the main thing, you have missed everything about to number our days. This is a part of it, and it's an exciting part of it. But the reality is, is that, you know, in this topic of, and we, we call it the rapture and the return. You really want to know what I call, I want to call it? I want to call it the resurrection, the rapture, and the return. I want to integrate three things in this today that all of you are going to be like, what? Because when you see the word resurrection, and then you see rapture, and then you see the return, all of those words, you're like, how does all that fit? And I would say, yes, it does. I'm going to end with something, Lord willing, uh, that I think is going to be the most important part of this whole message, um, and I'm going to end with it, but I, I want you to understand my calling is a follower of Christ, and what are those things that he's asked of us as a follower of Christ? When you understand that we are being asked to count the costs from the minute that we say yes to Jesus, that will help you understand the direction that we will go to today. Anyway, thanks for jumping in. Thanks for joining us today. Um, I am very, very thankful for this opportunity to teach the Word. And so I, I know we've prayed, but Lord, I just pray that you in this time would bring clarity uh, to what you want us to see and hear. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Uh, Kevin, would you go to 1 Corinthians 13, 12? I just prayed for clarity, and then you'll be like, wait, why are we going to this text? 1 Corinthians 13, 12. I think this is a good text to start off with if we can. Uh, the Apostle Paul is writing, he says, For now we see indistinctly, as in a mirror, but then face to face. For I know in part, but then I will know fully, as I am fully known. Ray, when you see that text, how do you set that up with this text? Well, uh, you know, it's back to we just, we know in part. And I think that has really two meanings. We don't see the whole picture, but it's also talking about individually, each one of us, may have an element of the picture and so it calls us into a collective yeah, but even with that we're still not going to know until we're face to face with jesus completely okay do you see that do you hear that so what we're going to talk about there are some components we just don't know now let me flip it on you and go to daniel 12 verse 4. okay daniel 12 verse 4 this is a text that we've referenced almost every time since we've done this study but in daniel 12 verse 4 it says this 
Uh, but you, Daniel, keep these words secret and seal the book until the time of the end. Many will roam about and knowledge will increase. So that's our tone. We don't know everything, but we're going to know some things. <laughs> right? So we're dogmatic on very little. <laughs> I think that's really key, and I think that's important. So having said that, let's go to Matthew 24, and let's begin to dig in. Matthew 24, Kevin, just start in verse 1, actually. I'm going to go over a, a brief outline. I'm going to write it up here because my, my prayer is, is that more and more we would begin to say, I have this in my head. That's what I want. I understand this in my heart. As Jesus left him in verse 1, was going out of the temple complex, which means, remember, there was the temple. I think that's such a strange concept. Christ is there and there's the temple. And his, his disciples came up and called his attention to the temple buildings. And then he replied to them, and he said, don't you see all these things? I assure you, not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. And while he was sitting then on the Mount of Olives, we know that based on Mark 13, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, right? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, four guys, they sit down and they come up to Christ. And these disciples, they asked him privately, they said, hey, tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They asked three questions. I really want to know, hey, when is all this going to unfold? I really feel like because of COVID and this pandemic and all of this racial tension that's come in and now you have this political disruption, all of these things that are just like, you take your pick. Everybody wants to know, are we getting closer? I think we might have phrased it differently, but I think it's the same heartbeat. And, you know, Jesus replied to these questions. And so what he began to do is he began to spell out science. And the very first sign, again, I'm not going to elaborate on these, is that he does say there are going to be birth pains. In these birth pains, you need to watch out for the false messiahs, the wars, rumors and wars, nation versus nation. And again, that could look differently now. You realize that in war today. It might not mean they're actually in combat fighting, fighting. There could be technological things, all kinds of things, you know, that I could start going down examples. But fighting could look different today. You know, when we think of war, when I was a kid in junior high, you think about of a war that's taking place, you're actually watching it on TV. You're seeing the, uh, the tanks go in. We, we see some of that, but not as much. It's a little different. Then you have the watching out for these birthing pains of the kingdom versus kingdoms. Famines. Then you start seeing earthquakes. And remember, these birth pains, and I think this is important, all of these, they're going to start pointing to, and they correlate with the seals found in Revelation 6. So Matthew 24, okay, what you're going to see is that Ray and I and our team, we make a correlation of Matthew 24 tying it in with the seals. There's a total of seven seals, okay? Up until this point, we've really only categorized six. So I just want to make sure the birth pains, there are, there's the first, uh, which... I'm not going to get into all those details just because of time. The first, second, third, and fourth seals are described, okay, in this, in verses four through eight, okay? Again, this is a, uh, an overview. If you want to watch this, you can go back to lessons 24 and 25. At the same time, you're going to also see, right, after these birth pains are taking place, while they're taking place, you see a peace treaty take place. So in this context, you have the birth pains, you have the peace treaty, and then we already alluded to this. That peace treaty, Ray, what does it launch? Well, it's, it's one of the indicators that we've entered tribulation. All right. 
So again, summaries, birth pains, peace treaty, tribulation. Then you get into another aspect within the tribulation. Ray, why don't you explain the abomination of desolation, please? Well, this is uh, spoken of in Daniel, which uh, Jesus refers to when he says, when you see the abomination of desolation, he's talking about the Antichrist uh, in some form proclaiming himself as God halfway through the tribulation. All of these things, as the three, and eight, once you're in, right? Once you're in the seven years, once you hit that three and a half year period, okay? You remember what it's called? It's called the Great Tribulation. Okay? Here you have the Great Tribulation, which is considered the last three and a half years of the seven years. Again, theologically, if you want to know more about this, please go back. Uh, in Daniel 12, verse 1, I think you need to know some language of how they describe this. Daniel 12, verse 1 uh, if you can go there, at that time, Michael, the great prince, who stands watch over your people, will rise up. There will be what? A time of distress, such as never has occurred since nations came into being until that time. This can be described as that, this times of distress, okay? So as we get into rapture language coming up, okay, just so you have an understanding, when people say pre-tribulation, okay, I'm going to get into this. They're going to say that people are raptured pre, before any of these issues of the seven years take place. Halfway, okay, the three and a half years, when you say mid-tribulation, they are saying that the church would be raptured. I'll define all of that, okay, what that means, but I just want to give you an understanding. That some people would say there's a mid-tribulation that you're taking out before this great period of distress. And then some people would say you're a post-tribulation, which you're not going to be raptured out until at the end. And then I also want to introduce another view. It's called pre-wrath. Okay, pre-wrath means you're raptured before the wrath of God is fallen, is on the earth. Most people, I'm pretty sure, have never even had that dialogue. Uh, lots of seminary, lots of years, and that was never a teaching, by the way. So I'm trying to show you just on this little visual here, once this happens, people will say, mid-trib, I'm out. The church is out in this context. Before any of this, some people, before the peace tree, they'd say, I'm out. Pre-trib, that's not a negative or a positive when I say that. I'm just trying to give you a visual. Post-trib, I'm out after the seven years. Or then if you put in here, we don't, we don't know, right, Ray? As far as the wrath of God, when it is released, okay? We have an idea, uh, then you would be out there. Okay, we talked about this as well. We know that the great tribulation, keep going to Matthew 24, Kevin. Go back to verse 14. We know that the gospel is going to be proclaimed. These are signs, correct? Signs of the times that we are looking for. The gospel is going to be proclaimed to all nations. So if you want to know, are we getting closer? Well, you have to say the ethnos, the people groups, has all of those people groups, have they all had a chance to hear the gospel? Right now, you can prove that's not the case. Okay, you can prove that that is not the case. Isn't that, isn't that mind-blowing? You know what he's waiting on? Laborers, by the way. It blows my mind. We are the, yes, I'm drastic about this one. We are the only things holding back the return of Christ. The labors are few, but the harvest is, is plentiful. That's a soapbox of mine. Not everybody emphasizes that much, but I, I believe we could be a part of that. So you have this gospel that's proclaimed. Again, I'm not getting into all this context. And then last week, do you remember this? We talked about Satan, right? 
how Satan got kicked out of heaven. Ray, why don't you explain that one? Well, I think it's, uh, it's really he no longer has access because we know from Revelation it says, you know, that, uh, that the accuser is kicked out, the one that accuses the brethren night and day. So he no longer has access to accuse anyone. He is stuck down here on the mess he's created. And it says he has a little bit of time and he is in a rampage. In, uh, in Luke 10, Kevin, if you'll go there, Luke 10 verse 18, you also see this reference to Matthew 24, 29, this same picture, okay? I'm gonna show you. In Luke, 18, Luke 10 verse 18, he said to them, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. This is the same picture from our perspective of Matthew 24 verse 29, okay? So what you're going to see is, is that Satan, he falls. Okay, Satan is a fallen angel. Kevin, can you go there, Matthew 24, verse 29, please? Matthew 24, verse 29, it says this, just so we're all on the same page and you transition into verse 30. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not shed its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and here it is, and the celestial powers will be shaken. Okay, so this is huge immediately after the tribulation. So the tribulation is how long? Seven years. That's pretty clean, right? Everybody would agree I have no problem up until this point. Immediately after the tribulation, the sixth seal takes place, right? This is the process, right? Am I clear? Is that, yeah. it, it's kind of the circle. Yeah, it, if I think we need to look at these not so much as this stop start, this is there's kind of a bleeding over, Good. so yeah. So all of this takes place, we know at least at the end of the seven years, after it says the tribulation, right? Uh, I actually think those astrological signs are a physical manifestation of what's happening in the spirit realm. Hmm. So I believe that is a picture of him in the demonic realm falling because throughout scripture, stars uh, are very connected to angels and falling stars are fallen angels. So a lot of times things happening in the spirit realm manifest in the physical realm. And I think this is an example. Good. Go to Revelation 12, 7, 8, and 9. Thanks, Ray, for that point. Revelation 12, 7, 8, and 9. Uh, if you'll go there. Again, we alluded to this, but I think it'll start tying into what we're talking about. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, right? The angel and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon is Satan. The dragon and his angels, the demons, right? Fallen angels, demons, they also fought, but he could not prevail, that's Satan, and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was what? Thrown out. The ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. So Satan was kicked out of heaven. And go to Revelation 12, 12. Revelation 12, 12 reveals this, and it says this. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and to the sea, for the devil has come to you with great fury because he knows he has a short time. Ray, you want to expand on that? I believe this is uh, what triggers the wrath of God. So Satan is no longer has access. He's kicked out all of that astrological 
disturbance is a picture of what's going on. I believe also during the time of the tribulation could be the time of the war going on in heaven that's manifesting on the earth. And then when, once he is sentenced to earth, that's part of why God's wrath is poured out on Satan. We don't know how long wrath lasts. Okay. That seventh seal. Can you make a distinction? Okay, you're saying Satan's wrath. Okay, clearly we all see it here. He has a short time. Hell is going to come all break out, right? While on earth. Like there's something that's going to take place. We don't know the exact period. We don't know the exact time. Fair? Yeah, I would say that his wrath, I believe, is coming through the seven-year tribulation. It's just he is now sentenced to earth during the wrath of God. And I believe this war in heaven is what's manifesting down on the earth. Okay. Just slow down here on this one. Okay. I think this is important in order to transition into the next. Okay. So on Satan's wrath, the part that's a little weird, okay, is that we're saying it, it could it equal to the sixth seal, but now are we backtracking and saying, does that make sense? I've always believed that Satan's wrath is the seven years because God's wrath is not poured out until the seventh seal. Correct. And so uh, what I was just speaking of is this war in heaven could be what is manifesting on earth, his wrath. He's in, he's in warfare because he is trying to do his second takeover. He's trying to do it down here on earth with the Antichrist and the empire. Yeah. And he's also doing another try in heaven that we saw back in Isaiah 14, yeah. where he tried to take over. And so God's wrath is not poured out until that seventh seal. So all of this is launched. You know, when we get into the seals, that first seal is the Antichrist being released on the white horse. The false Messiah. Yep. So that's the beginning of the wrath of Satan manifesting in those seven years. Okay, Kevin. I think where I get hung up a lot of times is I think the seals are all part of the stuff because Christ is, you know, talks about Christ being the one who's going to open the seals. So that's where we start getting hung up. Yeah. So one of the Hang things... Hang on, let me just say that real quick. When Kevin says that in Revelation, only Christ could open up these seven seals. Okay, that, just so everybody's understanding, that's what Kevin alluding to. So if you have six seals, go ahead, Ray. Yep. So uh, again, what he's talking about is John is seeing a vision and there's a, there's a scroll. I like to think of it as a book. And each of the, that book has seven seals on it. And no one was worthy and everyone was crying out. And Jesus is the only one found worthy. And I think a lot of times we look at that like Jesus is... Uh, launching these things that happen. But I don't believe that's the case. It really helped me to see because the wrath of God isn't poured out until the seventh. He's actually opening, opening up chapters of a prophetic book that is describing the events that are happening. That's a whole different mindset. Instead of him causing it, he's actually prophetically showing you what's going to happen with each chapter. When you see it through that lens, the final seal makes a lot more sense. The final chapter is now when the wrath of God is poured out. Therefore, the first six is not the wrath of God, if that makes sense. Okay. 
for some of you, that might be a whole new, like, wow, okay, what? So just, it's okay. I'm fine with that. Just know this. After the sixth seal, there's a pause. Okay? So when you get into Revelation uh, 7, you have a pause before the seventh seal, before the wrath of God takes place. We'll get into that, hopefully, today. Maybe not. When you get into that, there's a pause. What's the purpose of the pause? Okay? All I want to just say is this. You have what's called the 144,000 are sealed. Okay, we're not, we haven't talked about rapture yet. We haven't talked about resurrection yet. Okay, I'm just giving you some uh, references here. After the tribulation, these things take place. Now hit a pause button. This is not in Matthew 24. Okay, Revelation 7 is not, you're not like, oh yeah, it's right there. All I want you to know is this. In Revelation 7, can you go there, Kevin, verses 1, 2, and 3. And I heard the number of those who were, uh, sorry, verse 1. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth restraining the four winds of the earth so that no wind could blow on the earth or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel who had the seal of the living God uh, rise up from the east. He cried out in a loud voice to the four angels who were empowered to harm the earth and the sea. Don't harm the earth or the sea or the trees until what? Until we see the slaves, seal the slaves of our God on their foreheads. So in other words, don't release the wrath until I got 144,000 that are quote-unquote preserved. They got some kind of cool, uh, what did we say in prayer time, heavy-duty anointing seal on them, right, this morning? And so don't, don't do anything until we have sealed the slaves of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the Israelites. Now, this 144,000 could be its own teaching, by the way, for a long time. I'm going to summarize it right now, Okay whether you think it's an actual number or not an actual number. That's a Ray and I discussion, okay? For now, I'm going to say it's an actual number, 144,000. 12,000 are coming from each tribe. These tribes are represented by, by the Jews. However, you have to have an understanding. There were Gentiles, according to Ezekiel, that lived in the land at that time that were what? Part of that land, part of that community. So we, we, we think that it, we know that it's fair to say they're Jewish, but there could be an aspect of some Gentiles in that 144,000, okay? We also know that they're evangelists. They're evangelists to share the gospel, what, in this period of wrath that's coming. Here's what you have to have an understanding, okay? And I'm okay if you're not okay with this, okay? Does that make sense? We are making a distinction. There's a seven-year tribulation. 144,000 get sealed, the wrath of God comes, and they're entering into the wrath. Why? To share the gospel, Amidst the chaos, they're still sealed and they're going to do it. And by the way, these Jewish people, maybe some Gentiles, they're evangelists and they're pure, which means they haven't defiled themselves, which they are virgins. So in this pause period between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, okay, after the tribulation, according to Matthew 24, right, these things are going to take place. So in that period, you have 144,000 that God says, good, I've got my crew. So can I just tell you theologically, there are people today that teach their denomination is 144,000 that are part of it. It's false theology. Amen. It's wrong doctrine. Amen. It has nothing to do with your denomination in this earth today. None. So don't worry, you're not left out, Ray. In fact, these are the ones that end up leading national Israel 
to turn and look on him whom they have mourned. Yeah. <laughs> and he returns. So they are the ones that go through the wrath that turn everyone to Jesus. All right. They get to play the most special part of revival. It's more than likely not us. <laughs> I'm hesitant to say that because, you know, God can do anything he wants in that context. But you've heard our theology on this. Now, I want you to go back to Matthew 24. Remember, verse 29 says, after the tribulation, Satan's going to fall, right? We've agreed to this. You see that in the context. It's pretty clear. Immediately after the tribulation. There's no, you can't really work around that. But now when you go to Matthew 24, 30, it says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven. I like that, that he's not just on one cloud, by the way. He's coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, it says he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Now, obviously, clearly from our perspective, we believe he's talking about the rapture. But before the rapture takes place, the resurrection has to take place. What do we mean by that? Well, I'm going to write this up there. Let me go to the point here. Uh, it would be point nine. Okay, so I'm going to write up here resurrection. I am not talking about Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. We're talking about the resurrection of the dead. Okay, let's go there if you would, please. Go to... Uh, let's start off with, uh, go to 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through, we'll go to verse 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, 15 through 17, it says this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 15, 16, and 17. It says, for we say this to you by a revelation from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly have no advantage over those who have fallen asleep. That language, fallen asleep, is dead. So if you are alive when Christ comes back to get his people, you have no advantage over the ones that have died. Why? Because in verse 16 it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, the dead in Christ, Ray, who, who are these people? It's all those who have believed in Jesus, even... I believe all the way back to Adam. Uh, it's, you know, under the, under the law, it was those that believed in the coming Messiah, expressing their faith through animal sacrifice. It's, you know, the patriarchs. It's everyone who uh, believed in the Messiah. They just looked forward to the cross. We look back. It's all the, all the dead in Christ. So regardless of where your rapture view is, you always need to know the dead are going first. If you're alive, when he comes back, you get a watch. I was going to give you like a, a person that knows the Lord that's a dead relative. You get to watch him go up. Whoa, hey. That's true. That's not insensitive. It's reality, right? It actually happened uh, at Christ's death when people got up out of the grave, started right. walking around, got a little dress rehearsal. <laughs> of course you had to go there. Yeah. Like, what? Yes, yes. So all you have to know is whether you're pre, mid, or post. Who's coming first? The dead. The dead in Christ. And that could be Old Testament saints along with New Testament saints. That could be 20, 20th century saints. That could be 21st century saints. Anybody that's died before you that is new Christ as their Savior, they're going first, right? Yeah, you know, you could also make the case 
that he's only talking about the church age and those beforehand will be uh, rewarded along with the rest of Israel. So you can make a case either way. Um, but it seems to mean everyone to me, but you can go either way with it. Thank you. First uh, Corinthians 15, if we can. First Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. First Corinthians 15, 51 and 52. Again, just another context that would support the dead first, uh, the alive next. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. <laughs> we will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. And by the way, that changed is if you are alive, you have these uh, mortal bodies that literally get changed into immortal bodies. That, that's what it's talking about. Like in a twinkling of an eye, we'll all be changed. So if we're here and he comes, which it could happen, by the way, all of a sudden you become immortal. Okay, let me keep going here and I'll come back. In the moment, in the blink of the eye, at the last trumpet, right? For the trumpet will sound and watch in verse 52 and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal must be clothed with immortality. You have to always know both are coming back to meet Christ. Okay, Ray? We had another dress rehearsal at the transfiguration. <laughs> yes. I got to watch Jesus transfigure into his immortality. Okay, now even in the Old Testament, did you know they talked about the resurrected of the dead? It's an Old Testament view, and Ray, I love, this, is, this comes straight from Ray. Daniel 12, verse 2, if you want to go there. Daniel 12, verse 2. Remember, what are we talking about? After, I'm just going along with the, with the text here. After the tribulation, from our perspective, okay, you're going to see the dead rise. Okay? In uh, Daniel 12, 2, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will what? Will awake, and I like this, some to eternal life, and some to shame and eternal content. This will take place. Daniel even talks about this. And Ray, I like this reference that you had in Job, uh, Job 19, 25, 26, and 27. Job 19, 25, 26, 27. And by the way, Job could be the oldest book of the Bible. To gain insight like this, whew. But I know my, my living Redeemer, and he will stand on the dust at last, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will what? See God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Even the Old Testament had this mentality. The dead are coming back to life. Ray. And I think it's amazing. He's talking about God. Uh, that's a, another translation talks about him taking his stand on the earth hmm. and i will see him yeah. in my flesh yeah okay. after i'm dead the topic we're going to get into now is not salvation issue it's important to know that because of one reason people split over this topic right here and when I say split, they start their own theology, they start their own doctrine, they start their own denominations. We are after unity here. So this is why I don't make these things the issues, but I do need to address it. And so if you would, let's go back to Matthew 24, 30 and 31. So we do know that the resurrection is of the dead, and Ray, we can even write the dead in Christ. Yep. And then what we would allude to is after, after the resurrection, after the resurrection of the dead, we know that the rapture takes place. Again, 
If you hold this view in a pre or mid and a post, I'm fine with that. You just need to know these go together. Okay, these are going to go together wherever you're at. Okay, now go back to Matthew 24, 30. I do go back to 29. Okay, the reason that we come up with this perspective biblically is I don't know how you get around this. It just says immediately after the tribulation. And then it just builds on the, the, the verse. Like it's just, to me, those things are pretty black and white. So when you go to verse 30, after the tribulation, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He will what? Send out his angels with a loud trumpet. They will gather his elect from four winds and from one end of the sky to the other. This is where you guys, many people begin to talk about this word rapture. Ray, why don't you define the word rapture a little bit and talk uh, about that? You know, it's, I don't have it in front of me, but there's a, there's a, uh, a word that people, I think it's like harpazo or something like that. It means to be harpazo. caught up. That's it. That's Tennessee Greek. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's being caught up. It's a, you know, you can look at it as a, when people talk about raptured, uh, there's also a lot of emotion. It's like an incredible um, emotionally charged excitement. Uh, there's a lot wrapped up in that word. And, you know, that word does not appear in the Bible. It's, it's a word that people have attached to this uh, being caught up together with the dead, Christ in the air. And I'm pretty sure we're going to be rapturing inside. It's going to be a pretty amazing thing so it's a it's a it's a good word but it's not a biblical word now there are so many texts that you could say to me hey i'm a pre-tribber and i have this view yes i'm a mid-tribber that says yes i'm a post-tribber and so to me you have anybody can do this okay does that make sense you can take a verse and support this i just really believe that in this context for what we're communicating i really believe it really aligns more with after, after the tribulation. Now, Ray would even push me on that right there because Ray would say, call it something else, okay? I'm just trying to just spell this out for you as, as clean as I can. Uh, let's go through this if you can. Can you go to 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4? 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. To me, this is how we get to this point. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4, it says, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus and our being gathered to him, let me hit a pause. There's a difference, I believe, from Christ coming to get his people than Christ coming back for Armageddon. That's important. So Christ comes back for his people because think about it this. When Christ comes back to fight in Revelation 19, who's behind him? The saints. He's got to come and get them, what? First. He's got to come and get them first. So when I put this title in my head, re uh, resurrection, people always think it's something else. Rapture, okay. But then when I put return, I'm actually talking about the return for Christ to get his people. Not about the second coming that we always reference. I believe that happens. But just go to 2 Thessalonians 2. So it says in verse 1, uh, verse 1 again, just Kevin, so I can back up here. Uh, and our being gathered to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be easily upset in mind or troubled. That's an interesting text, by the way. 
either by a spirit or by a message or by a letter as if from us, alleging that the day of the Lord has come. Hey, don't worry. Don't let anybody deceive you in any way for that day. So the day that the Lord comes will not come. What? Unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. When is the Antichrist revealed? Well, let me go to verse four. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object or worship so that he sits in God's sanctuary, publicizing that he himself is God. So when is that? At least according to this text, it's mid-trib. We don't know when he is fully revealed until he says, I'm God. So in that understanding alone, you could say, well, this would be, I support mid-trib. Okay, so I'm trying to point out and reference some of these things. And that's, that's actually pretty clear. So you have this context. Uh, Ray, you want to jump in? Well, I mean, you know, obviously, it, this definitely supports at least a mid-trib, but it doesn't say that believers are removed after this event. He's just... What was happening in Thessalonica is people were claiming that the, the, the day of the Lord had already come. And so that's obvious that it meant him catching them up. And so theologically, he's bringing them back around that the Antichrist has to go into the temple and declare himself to be God. That has to happen before Jesus calls up his saints into the clouds. So when we think of rapture and he's coming to get his people, this is where we always have this imagery, right? Matthew 24, verse 36. He says, now concerning that day and hour, nobody knows. Neither the angels in heaven nor the son except the father alone. As the days of Noah were, so the coming of the son of man will be. For in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah boarded, boarded, boarded the ark, right? They're, they're doing life, right? Doing life. And in that, pro in that, in that process, says, so as the Son of Man will, will be. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. One will be left for judgment and one will be taken to be with the Lord. And it keeps going, right? Uh, it says in verse 41, two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. That's where you get this imagery, you guys, of, you know, one is left, one is taken. Therefore, be alert since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the owner had known what the time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you always must be ready. Because the Son of Man is coming at any hour that you do not expect. So for me, the mentality is, is whenever you're taken, I'm going to say this over and over and over again, you still have to live a life as if you're ready. Amen. Yeah, we're going to give you signs that we believe Christ talks about. But the reality is, is that we still have these time revived shirts that say, be ready. This is the understanding. We want to be ready when he comes because we do not know the hour. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Okay, so in this context, where we're going to go next week is, is that we, we believe that we weren't designed for wrath. 
Let me make a distinction, wrath of God. Can you guys go to Matthew 5? Well, if you have a word, go to Matthew 5, 10, and 11, and 12. You remember Jesus is hanging out with his disciples. This is the early days of his ministry, right? He's like, hey, by the way, and he gives the Sermon on the Mount. He begins to build this mindset, and he begins to go through the Beatitudes. And he starts it off, right, with blessed are those who are poor in spirit, right? So he begins to go through this humility process. He begins to go through those that are merciful. But by the end, he communicates a message. Matthew 5, 10, those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Matthew 5, 12 says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Here's my first goal for this lesson, that you have an understanding that when you said yes to Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection, you allowed, because of that, the Spirit of God to come into your life, you are already saying, I'm willing to be persecuted. That's what you're saying. If you are counting the cost, that is your in. And you're saying, no matter what comes my way, from the very beginning, Christ speaks into that. That's us. That's to me why this whole rapture discussion is really sometimes a mute point. Because he's trying to instill in us from the very beginning, you should expect this if you're living for me. I got a video yesterday from our friends in Africa. And they sent a video of those in Afghanistan. And they're lining them up and they're shooting them on the back of the heads. That's not in the tribulation. That's today. And the only way you can live like that at all is you understand if this is what he's asking of me, I'm willing to go there. And so for me, lesson 26 of the rapture to really all this is, is to understand we've got to be there now. No, I'm not asking you to go get killed. I'm not asking you to go get drastically shot at, but I am asking you to live in that place. I will do whatever it takes for the sake of the gospel. And Jesus set this tone from the very beginning in Luke 9, 23. He says, then he said to them, if anybody wants to come with me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will save it. What is a man benefited if he gains the whole world yet loses or forfeits himself? For whatever, whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in that of the father and the holy angels. When you say yes to Jesus, the American church needs to wake up to this. We have to be willing to say, I will walk in this point. It's not safe. There's nothing safe about this. There's nothing safe about this. And so why do I believe? Why am I okay with going to this point? Because I think he's already prepared us for more. But what if he doesn't? Praise God. But to number our days mentality, the reason that I'm always so hesitant to go to this topic is because I want us to get to the point where I'm ready to live like this now. Man, I hope and pray we're not here for this stuff. Who doesn't? But part of my calling in my life is to equip the saints for the return of Christ. And part of that is getting you and me ready for more. And so when I look at all of these texts, and by the way, you can go over and over. I want to close with Philippians 1, 21. And there's lots of texts that say, hey, are you ready to give up yourself for me? But in Philippians 1, verse 21, for me, living is Christ and what? Dying is gain. 
I totally understand that you can have perspectives and views of pre-trib. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem if you're a mid-tribber. I don't have a problem if you're post-tribber or pre-wrath. What I'm after for this series, my heart and my prayers to number our gains, uh, to, to number our days, is that you would live like this right here. Dying is gain for the sake of Christ. And so my prayer is that this would just begin to speak to your heart. It's not taking away what we taught today. It's not taking away other things. It's just, this is the posture that I pray for. I really want to see the end come.